0: we really are creating the world that we want to live in. And so we need to kind of take our power and like really utilize it in a way that is benefiting the greater, the greater good.
1: Welcome to EcoAlarm, the podcast where we break down the major factors affecting the environment and explore what we can do to help. I'm your host, Imani.
2: And I'm your host, Bo. And today's topic is plastic waste in our oceans. Since the 1950s, around 8.3 billion tons of plastic have been produced, and only 9% of that has been recycled.
1: At this pace, by 2050, there will be more plastic in our oceans than fish. And this waste directly affects even our well-being. The average person can eat 70,000 microplastics each year.
2: To learn more about these issues and what's being done to help, We'll be talking to the Surfrider Foundation today, a grassroots nonprofit environmental organization that's working to protect and preserve oceans, waves, and our beaches.
1: Yeah, the organization focuses on plastic pollution, water quality, beach access, beach preservation, and sustaining marine and coastal ecosystems through beach cleanups, lobbying, and activism.
2: The organization has 176 chapters across the country, and hundreds of thousands of volunteer hours completed every year.
1: Today, we're super excited to be talking to DeRay Shin. She is the coordinator of Surfrider's Oahu chapter. So I guess just to get started, thank you so much for coming on, Duray, And I guess if you could just give us a brief introduction about yourself and Surfrider.
0: Yeah, awesome, thank you for having me. So yeah, my name is DeRay Shin. I am the chapter coordinator for Surfrider Foundation Oahu which is one of 80 chapters in the Surfrider Foundation Network um, nationwide. And I am born and raised in an activist family. I'm a second generation Korean American, um, born in in Pennsylvania, but now live in Hawaii.
1: Awesome. So I guess just to start off with Hawaii, you know, that's a topic that everyone's like, oh, you know, I want to visit. But I guess if you can go into some issues that maybe are unique in Hawaii and kind of got you started on Surfrider and then maybe how we can be more respectful when we come and visit.
0: Yeah, I mean Hawaii is one of is the most recently colonized place in in the United States and so there's a lot of fresh wounds and trauma here. And um there's also a lot of equity issues. Right now we're we're in a housing boom which means Hawaii is becoming increasingly gentrified and, and for the wealthy. And a lot of native Hawaiians and locals are being pushed out and a lot of folks who are leaving because they can't find affordable housing. And so there's a lot of kind of pain and a trauma here that people don't see when they're being marketed in these beautiful white sand beaches and these beautiful mountains. And I think that's something that I personally had a reckoning with being a settler myself, having been from Pennsylvania and choosing to to move out here for college and then and choosing to stay here for my career and my life. And, you know, for me, it was a very emotional realization in in my Hawaiian studies class in college to and I cried, you know, to, to watch these documentaries and learn about how Hawaii was wrongfully occupied um, in an illegal takeover by the U.S. military. So I think at the very base, just understanding that history and understanding how recent it is and um, coming, coming here, which is going to happen, people are going to come to Hawaii, but coming here with that level of awareness and respect and that open-mindedness to the culture here and why people are the way that they are. But I think the main thing is taking the culture of aloha from Hawaii and and spreading it around, around the world, wherever you call home. I think it's really important that we spread these native and indigenous values and cultural beliefs, um, across the world, because that's what the world needs right now.
2: Yeah. Um, no, I really appreciate that. I think obviously the cultural heritage is, um, very important. You also mentioned some of the environmental issues that the islands face. And I was just wondering, from the perspective of Surf Rider Foundation, um, what are some of the problems you guys are focused on? What are you trying to achieve in Hawaii?
0: Yeah, you know, the, the main thing that we focus on that most people know us for is our work in plastic pollution. And, you know, we do beach cleanups to raise awareness. And we also advocate for bans to single-use plastic and these other upstream solutions that can prevent us from needing to do beach cleanups in the first place. Um, and we also work work on beach access issues, making sure that the, our beaches aren't privatized or that our beaches aren't destroyed to save a home. A lot of other issues, um, including water quality and water retention to protect the ocean. So a lot of kind of issues surrounding our coastlines and our ocean ecosystems.
1: Yeah, definitely. And would you be able to go in? I know that your focus was mostly in kind of the plastic and pollution aspect of it. Could you go into a little bit more of your role in Surfrider and how that kind of relates on a day to day basis?
0: Yeah, you know, so my first beach cleanup in my life, really, I was 19 and I was a freshman or sophomore in college and I just popped over to a beach cleanup that was nearby and I'm from Pennsylvania, I, you know, there's not much nature there unless you're really trying to be in it. Um, And so I was kind of really shocked to be on this beautiful white sand beach with blue skies and palm trees, and um, found hundreds of pieces of plastic forks and food wrappers and water bottles. And I think, for me, that moment, at that young age where I truly believed myself to be an environmentalist, yet I was going and drinking out of plastic water bottles and getting takeout and using plastic forks, all of which were, many of which were ending up uh, on our shorelines and in, in the natural environment and hurting wildlife. And so for me, that was like an aha moment. And so, I started a campaign at the University of Hawaii to ban styrofoam from being used at food service locations. Um, And that was when I was like a sophomore, junior in college. And, you know, we passed that policy in four months at at the UH campus. And then um, fast forward to eight years, which is now, and we finally have a statewide styrofoam ban. And we've also successfully banned almost all single-use plastic for takeout on the island of Oahu, which houses over 70% of our residents. So I would say it's taken me, not me, it's taken our whole community and our whole movement a really long time to do those things, longer than I would have wanted to wait. But it's been really gratifying and humbling to, to see how change can sometimes be really fast and sometimes takes up persistence and patience to occur
1: yeah definitely and if you don't mind if we can go into kind of why these things take so long and kind of the logistics behind either the styrofoam or passing um, bill 40 which you mentioned was the plastic ban
0: yeah so for I, I guess I'll start with the easy and that was me as a college student I'm like oh let's just ban styrofoam like you know you just really believe you can do anything at a certain age and you know, I am grateful for my parents for exposing me to activism at a young age. So I knew how effective it could be. And so I kind of channeled that into environmental work. So when we were thinking about doing this styrofoam band with the Surfrider. Uh Club, which I was a part of at the time, it was very much like let's just start a petition. I think it was on MoveOn.org or Change.org, and we just directed it to the chancellor of the campus, so he was getting an individual email for every single signature on the petition, which I'm sure was a little bit annoying, but it was quite effective because he told us um, not not even a month later that in a public forum for students that he had received our emails and that he supported the ban in theory and was just waiting for something to end up on his desk. So literally four months later, we had a policy that was approved after one revision process. And, you know, it was a huge, it was a huge victory. It's 14, 15,000 students or so on the UH Manoa campus. And it's a huge campus. But um, in my head, I was thinking, okay, well, that was super easy. Let's do um the whole island next and then let's do the whole state. You know, in the next year or two years we can easily ban styrofoam. I mean all the facts are there. It's clearly terrible. There's clearly alternatives that are abundant. But those common sense reasons weren't enough. And, you know, like I said, it took seven years to get Bill Forty passed, which You know, it's a comprehensive single-use plastic span, which is a relatively new concept to focus on more than one material at a time to really address single-use plastics as a whole rather than just plastic bags or just styrofoam. And kind of like the the fun way to tell this story is that there were tons of youth involved. High school students came out. It truly was inspiring to see so many um, young people out there, so many people over the years who have been engaged through our beach cleanups were coming out and testifying and getting emotional and sharing stories of finding animals, ingesting or being um, entangled in, in plastic and things like that. But really why we were able to pass Bill 40, which I think is such a huge lesson for folks who want to get involved in activism or who care about political change, is not the fluffy stuff, right? It's not like the community got together and we really just like wanted this to happen. Like, yes, that's totally true. And that's probably a good percentage of it. But the foundational piece was that we have nine city council members who vote on local, local laws at the island level. And each bill gets routed to a committee. So whatever, if you have a transportation-related bill, it gets goes to the transportation committee. If you have a sustainability-related bill, it goes to that committee. And so all plastic bills for many, many years were going through the sustainability committee, of course. However, the chair of the sustainability committee Uh, wasn't really an environmental champion by any means and so essentially all bills for the most part related to progress on the environmental space they were all getting deferred which means they were being killed in committee and unable to move forward for a full council vote so what happened was somebody there was an election for a city council and the the incumbent who had been there for a long time was not very friendly to our issues. He was very pro-business and anti, not anti-environment. He was just pro-business, let's say. And he was, he was slated to be the chair, which is the most powerful position in council, but he was up for election. So he ran against someone who had run against him before and kind of for many, many election cycles, they were battling each other, but the incumbent kind of always won, but never by much, like one time it was like 40 votes, you know, like it was, it was always quite close. So the election happens again and again, it's neck and neck, 20 or 40 votes apart. What happened in that case was that somebody challenged it and it went to the Supreme Court and they said, the Hawaii Supreme Court, and they said, this: we need to do a special election because this was too close. And so they did another election with mail-in ballots the following following month or so and the um, incumbent lost. And so this new person who's more progressive and environmentally minded won the seat that would have been the most powerful seat on the whole council. So it totally shifted the dynamics of the city council and we suddenly had a potential majority for progressive and environmental issues. And what they did was they kind of internally had this bill and said, we're gonna route it through a different committee. We're gonna route it through public safety. And and talk about the health impacts um, of not addressing environmental issues and the health impacts of ingesting styrofoam and plastic. Because of that routing, we were able to get it to committee. The committee passed it out, and then the the full city council um, voted eventually seven to two to pass the bill into law. And the mayor happily signed it. But of course, there's a bunch of details in between that process. But really, the foundation is knowing how a bill is going to be what what journey and how many stops it has to take before it ends up on the mayor's desk. And if that first stop is going to be a block like a blockade, you really don't have much power beyond that so the only way we were able to like get all these youth to do all these inspiring testimony was to make sure that the bill had a chance to even be heard by the full city council Um, and so those are just some of the internal workings of legislative advocacy that I think I personally love and think are really exciting but uh elections elections really matter and oftentimes the newer the newer person is, is going to be a little bit more progressive as a general rule. But knowing who your candidates are locally and supporting ones that align with your values is huge. And vast majority of people do not vote in their local election, especially young people. And so I think we can't really complain about the way things are if we're not going to vote at every level and and know who we're voting for. And I think that's kind of a key foundational message if you really zoom out and look at where uh, power lies and where influence can be had.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a huge lesson that I think people take for granted and definitely voting in our local elections is huge. So um, yeah, Bo, if you have any thoughts.
2: No, I was just going to say it's great to hear about the work you did Uh, in your college years and how you continue to you know push for change post-college at Surfrider and uh, I was just curious you kind of touch on this but I'm just curious to hear more about sort of the lessons you learned from all these years uh, working with politicians or people in power and you know how do you go about working with people with different backgrounds or agenda and how do you deal with setbacks at times?
0: Yeah, they, Um, I have met a lot of politicians, and I would say that they really vary. There's a like a very big spectrum. Um, but I would say in general, my sentiment is that they're, it sounds so cliche, but they're all human. And they all have something that's important to them on a personal level. And for the most part, they all became politicians for, for a pretty good reason. And Sometimes I think politicians and even folks like maybe in my position get too kind of deep in these like networks and power structures and you start to become friends with like lobbyists. And I, I think it's genuinely challenging when you're that high up and you're connected to that much money and that much influence. I think it's genuinely challenging to, to, maintain the strength of your backbone (laughs) I you know and so I feel for these politicians who are you know being kind of pulled in so many different directions and being influenced over time by by lobbyists and you know my sentiment and my kind of like takeaway from being an advocate for so long is that you know I think money in politics is kind of the source of our challenges in making the progress that we need to save our planet and and to have a, have a brighter future. Because when I look at it, it's not the politician's fault and it's not the lobbyist's fault. It's that the system is set up that the lobbyist can funnel tons of money into a candidate's campaign fund for their next election. And that the election cycle happens regularly enough that they're constantly thinking about their donors. And, and it, it costs so much money to do even at a local level you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars to win a local small election in Hawaii, which is one of the, one of the less populated States in the U S and so that price just goes up when you have a a more populated state or more populated city. And I mean, I've considered running before and it's just the amount of money it takes and energy. And, and so for me, I, I just really see like campaign finance as a huge, foundational area where we can create the positive change we need and that'll really alleviate the pressure the heat from business lobbyists who get blamed for everything because they are they are like influencing things in a in such a severe way but it will also take the pressure off of politicians because then their elections could be publicly funded um, and there could be better regulations on lobby lobbyist influence and campaign finance and so Kind of I always just go back to like what's the root of the problem here, and I always think um, that's where where it lies is you know those intersections of influence.
2: I think coming up, we just kind of want to get into uh, the pros and cons of having a grassroots versus a more formal organization.
0: Yeah, there's um, there's so many there's so much to consider. You know I've worked with like various nonprofits on a volunteer level as well as at a staff level. And I think in general, like nonprofits are very under resourced, although there are definitely exceptions to that. But given that a lot of nonprofits are under resourced, I think, you know, uh, on the surf rider side, we're pretty much all volunteer run And, and I'm lucky to be on the staff, but I, the only staff person for our entire island. And then there's only one other who's my supervisor for the whole state of Hawaii and so for the whole state of Hawaii and all of our ocean and coastal issues of which we are the primary advocacy organization there's two full-time staff and you can only imagine the limited capacity that that allows us to you know to really achieve the solutions we're trying to achieve and of course we have hundreds of amazing volunteers who dedicate their free time to this but there, there is that piece of like, what is kind of the perfect balance of having volunteers really take the charge of things and then like paying people to do good work. And, you know, I think that nonprofit professionals, I truly believe, and I've been working to to advocate for and figure out kind of where our society is at with this is that nonprofit professionals are is a small sector of people who in their careers are doing mission-based work right they're doing things often out of the goodness of their heart for a larger cause for a better future whether it's for the environment for children etc and and I really think that Especially given the severity of our climate crisis that um, we should be valuing this type of work at a very high level and it should be it should be a highly competitive career for people to be looking into, especially really talented folks that are graduating college. you know, I think that it should be competitive because we need highly talented and dedicated people to be entering this field because the problems and solutions are are quite large, as we know. Um, and so those are my thoughts on the resources available and the capacity available in nonprofits. And because most vast majority of ones I've worked for are understaffed and folks are underpaid and overworked and they get burnt out and they choose to work in business afterwards anyway. <laughs> I think that it would be worth worth it for our industry and our field um, to really start to think about the value of its people and start to be more competitive in that way.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. I've um, read up on the sort of the compensation problems in nonprofit sector too. And I was just curious for surf riders specifically, how do you guys go about scouting um, talents like PhDs you mentioned before, who are working on these research projects? Are they mostly volunteers or
0: yeah, we are mostly volunteer run, you know, so it's just me and staff. And then we have kind of like dozens of volunteers that manage our programs and um, coordinate our work. And yeah, so we have some like PhDs in water quality running our water quality program. And, you know, we have some amazing, high, highly talented volunteers. And at the national level, you know, we have like an incredible staff of, you know, 60 or 70 full-time staff who are who are doing such great work and I think I just envision like kind of kind of a world in which this is like the last stop for folks right you know like that they don't have to look at the corporate world for like that six-figure income or you know to to have that savings and I really do think like it's an equity issue that people who are doing mission-based work and trying to do good for our communities and our planet, yeah, that they that they should be highly valued in their organizations and that that human energy is, yeah, is being kind of paid at the level of the work involved. Yeah, so that's something that I've been passionate about recently because I think that folks like our age, like I'm 29, and, um, you know, you all are students, and I think that our generations are – are often like unaware for a long time about financial security. And you know, like our generations is also also underprivileged when it comes to just the amount of financial access we have. You know, like our parent generation um, on average were wealthier than, than we were at our age. And I think these are the types of equity issues we need to solve because if the wealth gap is increasing at that fast of a rate. I really worry about, you know, all of us and then, you know, the future generations and how severe will we let the wealth gap become before we realize that we really need to allow everyone to be in a comfortable middle-class situation. Yeah, and I have so many friends who really care about the environment, who just work for restaurants or work for hotels. And yes, I really like to see this type of work be like much more abundant in terms of number of jobs available. And then the, the amount of pay that people are getting for it.
1: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I mean, me and Bo are in a club that has to do with business and sustainability, but I mean, it's kind of rare on campus and even, you know, trying to find internships, trying to find work, kind of dealing with the reality of if I pursue this and I want to really be in sustainability, I might be, you know, I have to deal with the, reality is probably getting paid less to do that. So um, yeah, couldn't agree more. And trying to work in the space is a journey. But just to kind of go into that a little more, because of, you know, the pay gaps and stuff, you mentioned that you had to take on a couple of side hustles. I'd love to learn a little bit more about those and how that kind of relates into your activism and surf rider. And you kind of mentioned that, you know, it all comes together. So
0: yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited um, that one of the projects I'm working on is called the Clarity Project, and it's one of the only, if not the only organization in our state that's working on advocating for access to psychedelics, and this is something that I've been passionate about since I was a college student and just realized the really profound healing potential that psychedelics can have, not only for folks that are really suffering from mental health, mental health issues, but also for those of us who are doing pretty good, um, but could be doing a lot better and right and and optimizing our connection with ourselves, our spiritual connections, our connections with nature. And yeah, so our organization is trying to advocate right now to legalize psilocybin, um, at least for therapeutic use, because as of right now, the, the FDA, you know, at the federal level has already fast tracked psilocybin to be approved in the next few years. Um, and they've they're approving research institutions to do studies um, specifically for treatment resistant depression and for which there are very little to no effective therapies and um, antidepressants, as many of us know, are highly ineffective and highly dangerous for for a lot of folks that use them on a regular basis. And so I think that offering natural alternatives, legalizing alternatives that grow in nature um, would be something that's long overdue. Um, Yes, I'm really excited about that work. Um, And I have a I have a project I'm working on called Project Thesis, which is around feminism and one on um, called good food movement which is advocating for veganism and folks to switch more to a plant-based diet to to save our planet and for all the other benefits that that includes but i think that it, it all really connects because what i kind of see in all of this is that you know we have to fight for equity for women And we have to, and and that connects directly to equity for the planet. And, you know, the book Project Drawdown, you know, which is like the prime book on how to solve our climate crisis with all the scientific research behind it. One of the very top solutions to solving climate change was to educate girls and women and, and to make our world more gender equitable because girls and women are the ones that, could increase or decrease our population. And we're making 83% of purchasing decisions in the United States. Um, And so we, I think the feminism connects and then the psychedelics connect because we have the experiences whether it's through psychedelics or not where we are humbling ourselves and we're connected to nature and we're working on improving ourselves and being open to change. um, I think we will really see the ways in which we've become disconnected from nature and be motivated to make the changes needed to create harmony and balance again between humans and nature, which I believe there's no separation between humans and nature and it's been and, artificial separation that's been created through our kind of cultural habits and and colonization over time and capitalism and you know that was a lot of things but I I think that's just kind of the journey that a lot of environmentalists go on is to realize like oh I just went to a beach cleanup and I realized plastic water bottles are bad and then you just like It just kind of snowballs and it becomes this gateway into this whole world about justice and equity and, you know, nature and how that all connects to politics and oppression and privilege and and all of that. And yeah, so we, we were talking before it was really like the themes, the theme for all of this seems to be that it's all connected and you can't really address one thing without addressing the other. And that's what I love about this work is because I intuitively knew that like when I was really young, I was like, I think I want to do environmental work because I really felt like there it, it connected everything for me at the time. And now I'm able to articulate that a little bit better. And now you see this huge boom in intersectionality, intersectionality intersectional environmentalism intersectional feminism and really like making sure that in any area where we're trying to fight for progress that we don't discard any other area because there's no reality in which any of them are actually separated so we might as well you know come together and within that effort there's so much more so many more of us who care about this or that and then we can kind of really like coalesce um, and that's kind of where I find hope—is to know that there's so many people like us who, who see that future that is more sustainable and more equitable, and and really more beautiful and community-oriented. And so that's that's the hope I have, and I think we many of us share that vision.
2: Yeah, I really like the point you made about healing on a personal level, how it's connected with protection of planet, and all the work you do in um, environmentalism and. I guess if you don't mind, personally, I'm curious about some of the other ways that you can, you know, be more in tune with yourself or just the planet at large. And uh, obviously, you found your calling in a way for people who are not doing this for a career necessarily. uh, What are some of the things you can do in their daily life and, you know, be more environmentally conscious and, you know, even to educate other people around them and make an impact?
0: I think the first thing, I mean, I'll say this, the, the top two things you can do in your individual life. If you don't want to become an activist, you don't want to donate any money, you don't want to put in the, that effort. That's totally fine. I understand. But the top two things you can do in your daily life around food choice and transportation to just in your own life. And, and that means that one, you, food choice, you need to reduce your consumption of meat and dairy and animal products, especially those that are from industrial or factory farm sources, of which that's 98% of what we see at the grocery store is factory farmed or industrially based. Um, And so, you know, people need to move towards a plant based diet or a vegetarian or vegan diet, you know, and that's as much as you can, and as much as you're willing to do right now, right. And I don't advocate for an extreme switch, because, then you're going to (laughs) relapse because food is, is an addiction in a way. And I I highly always advocate for a transitional um, change in, in your food choice. And so I know people who uh, are like vegetarian only on the weekends or um, vegetarian on weekdays, and then they're kind of like free on the weekends. Right. And so there's many variations or if you only do meatless Mondays um, and that's a big step for you, like, that's awesome. So food choice, reducing your animal product consumption and increasing your plant based food consumption. And what's so cool right now is that there's so many options out there and there's nothing butter, yogurt, cheese, um, fish, meat, you know, these things are just there's so many options and they're all so much more delicious every year. I've seen that shift just in the nine or so years that I've been vegan, the amount of options you have and the amount of flavor you get to experience as a vegan is there's really no sacrifice I found. Um, So that's the food choice piece of it. And then the transportation piece really is around flying. Um, Flying is, is one of the, the top polluters of the environment. And so for you frequent travelers out there, you know, like if you can reduce at all or do carbon offsets, I think that's huge. And then the, the vehicle you drive or don't drive um, is going to be a big impact. You know, I drive a fuel efficient car because I couldn't afford an electric, but um, electric will be my next one once I'm done with this car. And so I think making the choice that makes sense for your lifestyle um, and biking and busing always being kind of the better of all the options um and so yeah i think food choice and transportation just in your own life Um, and then a little thing i would add to that is go see a mountain or a waterfall like wherever you live everywhere in the whole world there is some beautiful nature near you and i wish you know someone had told me that when i was living in pennsylvania because there's some beautiful parks and creeks and and things that um would have been so cool to to see more of but yeah go to the beach go and like just be and like experience how beautiful nature is and how important it is for us to protect because we do not want to live in a world when we're older if we have kids where our beaches are totally polluted or our coral reefs have completely died and i just think we need to be grounded in that why like this is why I make these changes and why I care um, and why I'm willing to make, to change, you know, my, my behaviors on a regular basis. So I would say those two actions and then the one being like a fun thing, which is like, go be in nature, which will be good for you overall on a mental health level anyway. And I, I always think it's so cool that everything that's good for the planet is also good for you. So biking's way better for you than driving, first of all, on a health level. You know, vegans have the most optimal health outcomes of any of any sector of the population. Um, So you're going to be living longer. You're going to be avoiding essentially all the chronic health diseases that most Americans are dying from. Um, And yeah, so everything you do that's good for the planet. I found the research shows that it's good for you also. So you can purely be a selfish person um, and you could be saving the planet just by doing that.
1: Yeah, wow. That I mean, you couldn't have wrapped it up better than that. I think um, that was a great way to kind of close out unless you have any other um, questions, Bo. But I think at the end of the day, yeah, I think the thing that connects us most is nature and even like our discussion about intersectionality and how kind of taking these small steps keeps in account circumstances people have, whether you live in a food desert, whether you can't access certain transportation, just taking the one little step a day um, can make a difference and you know all of us can connect to nature in somehow in some way so yeah okay yeah but kind of what she was talking about and kind of getting at is this theme of everything is connected and when we talked about you know intersectionality how even starting with veganism, starting with activism, starting anything, you kind of have to start where you're at. And um, with all that being said, just taking the little steps. And even if that first step is just going out and appreciating nature is, you know, a huge thing you can do to kind of change your mindset and kind of get out of this very consumer focused world.
2: Yeah, I agree. Those are definitely some great tips for, Better physical mental health also if uh, you're looking to get into environmentalism but not as a full-time career. And yeah, with that, I think we can
1: uh, show how you can get into it if you want to. Um, you can find more information on how to support Surfrider, start a club, anything, join their existing chapters at Surfrider on Instagram and their other social media. For more information about us at EcoAlarm and how you can help Surfrider, their efforts, the oceans, or if you want to connect with Doray, I think her Instagram is at hiphipdoree on Instagram um, if you would like to connect with her there. And feel free to follow us at EcoAlarm Podcast. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can't do all the good the world needs, but the world needs all the good you can do. Bye, guys.